Welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast, episode 27. In this episode, I talk with Ben Powers about all things dyslexia. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com for email alerts for new episodes and content, read a transcript of this podcast, access articles and resources that we discussed, and find more information about our guests. And don't forget, if you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a positive rating in Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. Welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast. Today I have Ben Powers, and I will have him start by introducing himself. Great. Well, Tiffany, thank you for having me today. Very excited to speak to your listeners. My name is Ben Powers, and I am a headmaster at the Southport School in Southport, Connecticut. And we are a school for children with dyslexia and ADHD in grades K through 8. And I'm also an affiliated research scientist at Haskins Laboratories in New Haven. Haskins is a joint effort between Yale and UConn, and it's really the epicenter of cross-disciplinary work in areas of speech and language. I also have the privilege of working with Mr. Will Baker at the Dyslexia Foundation. I'm the chair of scientific symposia at the Dyslexia Foundation, where every other year we pull together 20 to 25 of the leading researchers in different areas of dyslexia research from cognitive science, neuroscience, genetics, and education research to really think about what kinds of questions and what should we be thinking about for a research agenda for dyslexia. So I have a a huge opportunity to have a foot both in the classroom and working with kids directly and then also in in the area of research. That's fantastic. And a huge passion of mine is working with children with dyslexia and helping speech language pathologists know more about what dyslexia is. And I was reflecting that I was a bit surprised I hadn't had a podcast devoted solely to dyslexia. So I'm very excited that you're here that we can talk about what dyslexia looks like, uh, what are these children like, and what what, what should we be thinking about in the schools? So you work with children all the time with dyslexia. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is to have a school for children with dyslexia? What is the context? Like how were those schools developed and kind of why? And are you part of a network of schools? How does this work? Absolutely. So being at a school for children with dyslexia and ADHD is possibly the best job you can have. And the reason I say that is for the vast majority of of our students, most of them had a negative experience before coming to us. And you really see that rear its head in terms of how they feel about themselves, their self-esteem, their academic self-confidence, the way they might interact with their classmates. In spite of being, you know, able to do all those things really well to be able to socialize and engage, the, the barrier of feeling less than because they haven't been able to access print at the level their classmates have been able to really takes a toll. And I think, you know, because dyslexia is really what we would think of as a hidden disability, it's hard for people to really wrap their hands around that. So by the time our kids get to us, they've been pretty impacted. And so to see kids get out of the car in the morning and be happy to be joyful to go to school is really incredible. And the history of these schools is that, you know, if you look back historically, most of the schools really focused on language remediation, language intervention. And that was the, that was the, you know, the core thing that students were doing during the day. Other academic areas, social studies, science, math, they were really secondary or maybe even tertiary. And so 
what what's happened is these schools have become more robust. They they're offering a lot more programming, and it's really aligned well with the growth in people understanding and recognizing dyslexia. And so now these schools like the Southport School, and there are a network of them, there are some incredible schools around the country and we do a lot of work together. We meet together, we talk about what are pressing issues with our students and our families and what's on the horizon. But they're really incredible places for children to come who have been more or less disenfranchised in their you know, their sending school environment where we can really spend a lot of time on deep language instruction. In fact, at our school, we spend 164 minutes a day on language. Each of our kids, uh, each of our students receives two daily tutorials in that are based in Orton-Gillingham. We use the Orton-Gillingham approach. And then we do a shared book literature experience for uh, all of our children starting even in kindergarten. And then we also do a separate writing class for our students. So they're getting a tremendous amount of language work, but it's coupled with some really great and strong academics so that once they're back to where they need to be and they can walk out of our school with their, their heads held high and their foundational skills strong, they can go back into a more mainstream environment and be incredibly successful. Now do you, most of the time do these children, they, it sounds like they have the failure in school and then they go to your school either through parents paying for them to be there or sometimes the school pays for them to be there. Is that the case too? Like how do, how do children get there and how often do they stay usually? Yeah. Like how long? So I think each of the schools in, in our category of schools, of schools for dyslexia are different. Yeah. Some of the schools position themselves as schools where the student would come in and, and spend the whole time there, just like a, a typical school environment, which has a, which is a great, it has a lot of advantages. The challenge is that our schools tend to be smaller. And once our students leave us, we know that they're going to enter mainstream environments that are gonna be more challenging for them. So the way we approach it at the Southport School is to say, our students come in and we spend as much time as we need with them to get them to a place where they've reached their foundational uh, skills, they've reached a level of where they've maximized their potential related to those foundational skills, but also where they have a strong sense of self, both for advocacy and for self-esteem. And so for the average student comes in for about three years, but okay. as you know, with dyslexia and ADHD, there are no averages. So some students come in, they need more time than that. Some students need a little less time than that. And what we find is that our students go off to really terrific public and independent schools that are mainstream. Some of our students who come later, you know, students who come in sixth or seventh grade, they probably need to continue into, a, into a, an LD high school program. But once they leave our schools, they just go off and do amazing things. Wow, I definitely wanna hear some more stories of some of your alumni going off and doing amazing things. So I know we've talked about that before, but I'll tell the listeners uh, just some basic facts about dyslexia as we're speaking here. So dyslexia is a brain difference that a child is born with. And as a speech language pathologist, I often look at the way that that brain difference manifests in early speech and language development. And um, on average, children with dyslexia do have some early speech and language development difficulties but some don't. And so then they go off to school and it almost becomes like this cataloging. I like how John Gabrielli said that some of the first formative, really the first formative experience you have in education is learning how to read. It's really the crux of the kindergarten and first grade curriculum in the US. And so then children are basically confronted with their biggest weakness and then they're kind of categorized according to it, right? So it's like they see 
maybe they've not experienced that before. You know, they're chugging along, even if they've had some speech and language issues, they've had some therapy, it's all been good, um, and they were feeling pretty good about it. And then they go, and all of a sudden they're looking around, they're like, everyone's learning how to read words, right. and I can't do it, what's going on? And I think about it in terms of like, I'm a horrible artist. Hmm. I like art. I actually yeah. love it. But what if I was, you know, <laughs> went to school and my listeners can think how good you might be at drawing. Are you drawing stick figures or not? And I'm in the stick figure category. If I had to initially go to school and all of a sudden I'm being forced to compare how well I draw to other peers, that would definitely affect my self-esteem. I would think, wow, I, I can't draw very well. So therefore I must not be a good learner in general. Right. And so then I can imagine that how that's affecting the self-esteem. And I see that all the time with the children I see. I'm sure it's a big part of what you see when children come into your school, how their self-esteem has been impacted. Uh, absolutely. And I, I love that analogy about art. I think about Mark Seidenberg's book and thinking about the development of writing systems. And the reality is, you know, all of these are forms of communication. And we all have relative areas of strength in certain forms of communication. And we all have relative areas of weakness. And if we lived in a time, a pre-writing system time, you and I, because I'm an awful artist as well, although I love art, I'm an awful artist, we would be at a significant disadvantage, right? And so I think one of the challenges is that we've shifted our communication, um, the medium we use, and so now we're in this place, which is a relatively recent phenomena, where now we have kids having to do this as, a, that's the way they're, you know, that, that the parameters of communication. and when they don't get the right type of literacy instruction early on, those formative years you talked about, and we know from the research, you know, huge differences even between intervention in first grade and second grade, or kindergarten and first grade, when we don't give them the right type of literacy instruction early on, it causes what you just talked about, this, this looking around the classroom saying, like, what, what is wrong with me? Why am I not getting it? And the response to that is to pull a child out of the classroom and put them in the resource room. And I gave a commencement address at Mitchell College last year. And one of the things I, I said in the address was, you know, for those of you who haven't been in a, a resource room, let me paint a picture for you. It's a small windowless chamber that's usually cinder block where kids go to spend time doing the things that they're the worst at. And so, you know, the analogy I use too with parents is imagine that you were a really great shortstop in baseball and, you know, but you were an awful pitcher. And so, you know, they, they say, well, fine, you, you get the shortstop stuff. We're going to spend the rest of the season, season teaching you to be a pitcher. You know, yes, it's important to know how to throw the ball. It's important to, to, to develop those skills. But by, by removing the focus on other areas where a child might be, have strengths, and, and re reducing the opportunity for, the, for them to develop those skills, what we end up doing is putting, we, we end up taking these children who are struggling and making their reading ability, which is their lowest common denominator. And we, we tend to, in schools, extrapolate that across the board and say, okay, so this child's struggling in reading, so let's lower the expectations, let's lower the instructional aspects of other areas to match that reading ability. And of course we know, you know, and we look at the distribution of children with dyslexia, there are a significant number of strong, you know, smart children with dyslexia. And so we actually disenfranchise them pretty significantly from a robust academic experience. Even just the way we 
capture intelligence, right? So oh, it's, yes. there's two tests, main tests, right? The verbal intelligence and the nonverbal intelligence. So when I talk to parents and they'll show me, I always look at the nonverbal intelligence because a child with dyslexia is already at a major disadvantage trying to capture right. intelligence on the verbal intelligence. And then what happens is those two scores are average. Mm -hmm. So then you see that, that you're basically evaluating again, back to this idea, like you're evaluating their ability to play baseball, how well they pitch only, not their ability to do be a shortstop, or you're evaluating a child's intelligence on how well they can draw a picture. And it, it really is such an underestimate of their intelligence and their capacity to learn and to do what they are good at. It's such a great point. And one, you know, we read a lot of neuropsychs because we, you know, we do a, we, when we're looking at students and whether we're going to be able to help them, we look at a lot of data. And one of the common remarks in the testing, you know, when we're, when the narrative reports of the testing from the testers really references this point that the discrepancy between those two scores. And, and of course, you know, I'm not talking about the discrepancy model for dyslexia, but, uh, but what, is often commented on is that this picture of the child's intelligence is probably not a true accurate reflection of their real capacity. And when you see students come in with fairly high IQ scores and you see that this comment that it's actually probably not even representative of their real potential, you start to say, okay, so how, how much potential are we losing in children who, who just need really good science-based literacy instruction? Absolutely. And I, I, I've um, been very interested in this idea of a discrepancy model because I see this all the time in the schools. There's this flawed perception that the, the intelligence scores are really where the child should be in terms of their reading. So you were telling a story about a child you had worked with and looking at their intelligence scores and kind of the, what they had gone through. Can you tell a little bit uh, about that? Yeah. So this is an interesting story. So I met a I met a woman with a daughter who was in middle school, and the mom had had known since she was a since her daughter was young that she thought she had dyslexia. Her daughter, you know, smart, creative, energetic, really enjoys learning. This is a young lady who, you know, she she wanted to read Les Mis because she is obsessed with the, actually went with her to see the Broadway play. And so, you know, wants to do this, wants to access this information, but really from an early age was struggling in school. Mom did some research and thought, boy, maybe it's dyslexia. So she went into the school and during the PPT meetings raised this concern and the school really, you know, just thought, well, you know, their response was, we don't think it's dyslexia. She's just behind, you know, she's just, she's just a little bit behind her classmates and she'll catch up. Mom kept advocating. They did testing and she had a strong, uh, she had a strong profile with her IQ, you know, um, it, close to, uh, close to the top of the average range. And so they provided some services, still pushed back on the dyslexia piece. And then her, her mom moved, they moved and they moved into a new district and same thing, they went in through this process and the school decided they wanted to retest this young lady again and they gave her a full neuropsych eval. And what was really sad was that when the neuropsych eval came back, they, the scores they had determined were just below the average range. You know, so, so when we look at standard scores of 90 to 110, 
this young lady was, you know, just at that point of close to 110 the first time they tested her, and she was below 90 the second time they tested her. And what the district, the district's response to this was, well, your daughter is struggling in reading because cognitively she's not as, you know, she's not as strong as some of the other students, and this is why she's behind. And, you know, as, as a single parent who doesn't have a deep understanding of dyslexia or intelligence testing, and as much as she believed in her daughter, it really started to weaken her own perception of her daughter because then she started to question, well, maybe I'm wrong. I'm biased. I'm her mom. And, you know, uh, so when I met this, when I met this woman and her daughter, I, you know, we, we just had to help them. And, you know, through the course of, you know, meeting with the school and getting her some support, she ended up getting one-to-one -one tutoring every single day. And you could see the difference within a couple of months, just the way she carried herself, the way that she was willing to advocate for herself. And now when she has a challenge with a teacher, you know, she, she's not argumentative. She's, she's, you know, she's a partner with them and she's much more capable of expressing that she needs help. And and support, not because she needs to be enabled, not because she's not capable of doing it, but sometimes she just needs a different modality to get to where she needs to go and where she has the clear potential to go. Yes, and it's tough to ask children to advocate in that way, but when they do advocate, they really have to do it. Um, it's so empowering for them because then they learn those skills to say, you know, this is just one aspect of who I am. And it's not the whole picture. Of that's right. Am, right. That's exactly right. Yes. One of my um, son's classmates actually in fifth grade did a whole presentation about what it's like to have dyslexia show his brain scan and how different his brain was. And it was so empowering talking to his mother about it because she said he had felt so much shame for so long, you know, having to go, like you said, to leave class, go to these special sessions for special education feeling like he just wasn't up to stuff with his peers. But then when he was able to talk about this, of course, children are so understanding and they're so inquisitive and curious. Yeah, and so perceptive, right? They know so much more than we think yes, they do. Yeah. So he, they were like, oh, wow, that's amazing. And my son came home and said, oh, you know, he has something called dyslexia and his brain is different. He sees the world in a different way. And it was, mm -hmm. it was so amazing. And to think that, that he has that skill. But I also want a world where that doesn't have to come right. from these children. I mean, I want a world in which it's just known by educators. And of course, we're in a great period now. I think I feel some optimism from some of the dyslexia laws and the work that we've done. Um, what do you think about some of those laws that are happening? What are you seeing in the schools? Do you think there's improvement in identifying dyslexia? And what do you think is going to happen? We see a huge change, okay. a huge change in terms of awareness. And one of the most powerful things that's happened in our field, actually the, the two most powerful things that have happened in our field over the last 20 years, one is all the incredible imaging work that's happening at uh, places like MGH and the work you're doing in the sale lab, and then places like Haskins and, and you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the research spaces that are doing some incredible imaging work that actually now give us that ability, not just to understand how we can be better educators and, and better interventionists for kids with dyslexia and reading disabilities, but also that we can now literally show people that this is there's a brain basis in this. And just want to give a quick shout out to Dr. Albert Galliberta, who was one of the huge pioneers in this under Norm Geschwind and the work that was done right here in Boston to really help develop that brain basis of dyslexia. So now it's so powerful to be able to sit down with somebody and say, look, you know, we can literally see it. 
the leverage though is are all these parents and you know not to stereotype but it's a lot of moms so a huge shout out to the moms too because what they've done is really engage legislative bodies and 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 you know whoever they can get the ear of to really help them understand that the change that needs to happen in schools is going to have a huge difference in the way that their that their children are able to think about themselves. So it's really exciting. At the same time, we have a huge amount. I think we both would agree to this. But there's a huge amount of work that we still yes. need to do, and and specifically around making sure that we're doing a better job with teacher training, because we we have a really backward system now where all of this advocacy work is great, but it's not really happening until after teachers are out of school and they've, you know, it's post, uh, you know, pre-service work. And so there's a lot of heavy lifting and teachers are busy. They put a huge amount of time and energy into their classrooms, writing lesson plans, teaching kids. I mean, you know, we, we both have children. We know what it's like to host a birthday party. Um, and so, you know, I mean, this is what teachers have to do every day. And so, you know, to encumber them to say, oh, look, you know what, we didn't teach you the right way in college. Now you have to, you know, now you have to learn this. And, and for a lot of reasons, that doesn't work very well. So I think there's still a lot of work to do in that space. And there's still clearly a lot of work we need to do when we think about vulnerable populations of students. And, and when I say vulnerable populations, I'm talking about children who are coming from a poverty, children who are disenfranchised because of the color of their skin, mm -hmm. children who are coming in as first generation English language learners, where you know the, the odds for those children are so low, um, you know, just to be able to get to a proficient level of reading without a disability. Mm -hmm. And then when you layer on issues like dyslexia or other, you know, other issues like ADHD, it, it, there's a huge chasm there. So I'm really excited about what's happening, but we've got a long way to go. Absolutely. And I think it's the, what's given me a lot of heart here is that we know the science says that what works for children with dyslexia also works for all children. That's right. Teaching reading, exactly right? right. And so it's been these silos that it's really struck me that you have like general education, like what happens in the classroom. And then you have what happens with children with dyslexia. And even the training, right? So it's like gen ed training versus special education training. But when you know, I've worked these longitudinal studies, you've seen hundreds of children. You know that it's on a continuum and there's just a variable uh, ability to read words. And at that lower end, that's when it gets really tricky and we say that's dyslexia. But all those children can benefit from the same thing. And it's just this continuum that doesn't have to be such a separate kind of So it's continuum. such a good point, Tiffany. Uh, a colleague of mine, doc, you know, Joan, Dr. Joan Nolly McCarthy from the Summit School, tremendous uh, leader in, in you know, speak, terrific speech yes. and language background. So Joan and I co-authored a chapter from one of the Dyslexia Foundation conferences that we had about two years ago on, you know, inclusion. And one of the huge challenges in this space is that what we see in most public schools is that if a child is lucky enough to get identified, and a child is lucky enough to get services, and then a child is lucky enough to that the school that they're in has somebody with the right kind of training, none of that is reinforced in the classroom when they go back. And again, it's not the classroom teacher's fault. They don't have, so 
child gets pulled out, maybe they get 30 to 45 minutes of some kind of group instruction. And of course, we know that probably, you know, 20% at a time is wasted going back and forth in the classroom. And then they go back and nobody can reinforce it. And yet, at the same time, we know that the same strategies that, you know, if they're lucky enough to be getting that in the pullout, those would just benefit all the kids in the classroom. And you know, I think about things like morphology. I mean, you know, how powerful are some of these tools to teach our kids by, by you know, teaching them morphology, the derivation of words, how to break them down, that things like deeming down and cap means head. So, you know, if they see the word decapitate, you know, they can actually make meaning of that rather than memorize, you know, I think about what we do to children in, in high school and having them memorize thousands of words for the SAT. Well, why are we teaching them things like morphology? Again, absolutely necessary for the learner with dyslexia, but a huge advantage for every other every other student in the classroom. Absolutely. And a, a shout out to the uh, Extraordinary Brain series, a, book, a series of books that's put out by the Dyslexia Foundation. So when these meetings occur, um, then the people that presented the meetings like you and Joan and several other researchers and practitioners will write, art, write book chapters and they go into a book that's been published and you can find out about that information on the Dyslexia Foundation website. There's also a ton of free talks that are on the website. You can watch hour-long talks that have been given, mainly geared towards teachers, and you can watch them for free and learn more about dyslexia. And then the other resource I love is the International Dyslexia Association has a nice resource about structured literacy and, and what you're talking about morphology and these different levels. What you said about it not being reinforced in the classroom, I also see the opposite, which is children with dyslexia have been taught to read in a way that's ineffective. And then when they go to <laughs> learn uh, to read using more effective methods, they have to unlearn. unlearn. Oh. So it's like a bi-directional, that's right? right. Like unlearning that's right. poor methods and then, and all of this comes from a place of true caring. There's, you know, these teachers are not um, giving incorrect instruction because they have malice in, at any level. It's that this is what they were taught or they weren't taught. And so they're then having to go and relearn more about how to actually teach reading. And, and I think the schools of education are doing better. At least we're trying. Um, and I'd love to hear more about what you're doing with Haskins to try to do more of this translational arm as well. Absolutely. So uh, I'll talk about Haskins in just a second, but one, one thing... I wanted to share about what you just talked about. So when I was when I was younger, when I was in elementary school, I was struggling with developing my reading skills, and it got pulled out. I was in the resource room, and you know, working on things like word attack and word identification, and so I struggled with those components of reading, and so it made reading more challenging for me. And by the time I hit fourth grade, I remember when we switched to textbooks, being in a position where the teacher was having the kids go around and read you know, paragraph by paragraph. And what I would do, because I was worried about reading out loud in front of my classmates, was I would try to guess where, you know, what paragraph would, would be mine. Or I would volunteer to read right away because I would, you know, I would make sure I couldn't practice. And so what would happen was I would sit in class they would go around, you know, student to student. I wouldn't listen to anything else that was going on. I was just trying to memorize the thing that I was going to have to read out loud. And then if it didn't get to me, I would leave the class. I would go to the bathroom, right, make an excuse. But, you know, it's 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 such an overwhelming experience. And and I don't have dyslexia. So, you know, I, 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 it, it wasn't even that significant compared to what, what some of our kids experience. And it's it spikes their cortisol levels. I mean, it makes such a huge 
um, you know, emotional, uh, takes a huge emotional toll on our kids. And the last Dyslexia Foundation one day conference that we just had at UCLA where uh, Dr. Sharon Vaughn was there and uh, Amy Grills, Dr. Amy Grills and uh, Dr. Margolis talking a lot about anxiety. And a reason I wanted to go back to this was you talked about that bi-directional nature. And that's one of the things they're really looking at is this bi-directional relationship between anxiety and reading disabilities and, you know, how they impact each other. And, you know, by the time our kids leave school for the day, their cortisol levels are through the roof and, you know, um, they, they fall apart at home. So, so that's why you asked about Haskins. That's why one of the reasons that Haskins is putting an initiative together. It's the Haskins Global Literacy Hub, really thinking about what are scalable models for getting in front of kids early with research and the science of reading and leveraging tools like, like ed, ed tech tools so that we can find ways that are efficient and effective to get in front of these children early. And part of that too is really finding ways to take some of the complicated science, some of the imaging science, and really find ways to translate that for educators. Last summer, we hosted the first Literate Brain Series at Haskins, where we brought in teachers from all around the country. We had teachers who were working with children who are on Native American reservations, who are hugely impacted for a number of reasons. We had we had student, we had teachers coming in from under resourced schools. We had teachers come in from affluent schools and we spent five days pairing those educators with researchers to really have a cross-disciplinary conversation so that the teachers could gain a better understanding and appreciation for what does the science really tell us and you know, helping the researchers understand how can we translate that language into digestible content for educators. And the flip side, it allowed the educators to share with the researchers what are they seeing taking place in the classroom. Because a lot of times, you know, just like the educators are really focused on the kids and doing the best job that they can, you know, researchers a lot of times are in the lab. Now I know you, you know, here at MGH, you are pushing out actively into schools, so you get a you get that really global view. But a lot of researchers don't have that luxury. So bridging that gap between researchers and the educators is hugely important. And that's one of the huge initiatives that we're really developing at Haskins. And we're seeing this in a lot of spaces. The IDA, for example, launched this past year, the Gordon Sherman Symposium for Education and Neuroscience. And so actually Lori Cutting and I are co-chairing that symposium this coming year oh, that's great. in Aurora for the IDA conference, where again, we last year we had over 500 uh, educators, professionals, and parents in a room where we could really talk about that translational work that Gordon Sherman was such a pioneer for, you know, doing that translational work in schools. Yeah, and it is, it has been the case, my experience, especially early on in my career, is that working with children with dyslexia in schools, I could never say the D word, <laughs> ever. That's right. And I would tell my research assistants, when we go into the schools, don't say we're doing a project on dyslexia. Say we're thinking about how children read and different children read in different ways, and we're interested in those who are struggling. Because when we would say dyslexia, the schools we work with would say, well, that's a medical issue. We don't, no, 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 that's, we can't determine that here, and we don't work with those children. Um, it was really shocking that that was the case because I was working with children who had dyslexia. 
in those schools. That's where they lived. That's right. <laughs> and it was this kind of separation that occurred. I do love what I'm seeing now in terms of the parents and researchers and teachers all coming together to recognize that it's not a dirty word. It's a it's what's happening and that we can now say dyslexia. I love that hashtag. Say yeah, say dyslexia. dyslexia. Right? Absolutely. Like, say it and all the words. Yeah advantages of dyslexia and all that. And speaking of that, I would love to hear some of the stories that you have. I know you have many from your students and what they've gone on to do and how having dyslexia has not negatively impact them, but what are some of the positive impacts and how are they feeling about it? Absolutely. So, you know, one of the fascinating areas of research that, that we know is happening right now is really on this on this concept of protective factors. And so when we're talking about protective factors, we're talking about things like grit or resiliency or being in a home with a lot of books or having you know very well educated parents. There are a number of protective factors. One but one of the protective factors this this concept of grit or resiliency and I'm gonna make a huge caveat here. We have to be really careful with these protective factors because they don't always mean that students are gonna be successful nor should it be yet another thing that a student or family has to feel the weight of like, okay, you know, you student, you're not reading well, you need to develop some grit. No, that's, that's not, that's not the answer. But certain people have, you know, something for, for whatever reason, they have these protective factors. And when you see these students who, you know, develop that grit and that resiliency and are able to crack the code, you know, even if they're, even if they don't reach grade level, you know, for these kids whose dyslexia is so impactful, once they, once they experience an environment where the questions they ask are appreciated in, in a way that the teacher has the flexibility to respond in a way to them that they need, which is a luxury. We realize this is a luxury. When you're in a public school with 20 some odd kids, that's not a realistic expectation, I don't think, in many circumstances. But in, in environments where you can really deliver this really strong literacy instruction and students you know, reignite that confidence and they have that grit and resiliency, we see these kids go off and do incredible things. We, we had a young man who came to us from, um, you know, after several years of being really challenged in school, not feeling great about himself, um, who did not have a number of those protective factors we talked about, did incredibly well at the Southport school. And then he left. And, you know, we sometimes don't hear from our students for a number of years. This young man came back, is at the University of Miami in Florida doing fashion design. And so incredibly talented and we see a number of these things where you know we've we have students who go on to be attorneys and they're really good at making you know arguments and problem solving and we have students who go out and are architects or we actually have a, a student who came back to us an alum who came back to us a couple of years ago who is in a phd program or we have a young lady who is an alum who graduated a couple of years ago and it was doing a joint she did a joint program in equine science and and art i mean just really fascinating work or uh, we have kids who are become glass blowers or you know it doesn't all have to be about going on to earn like the highest degree possible we but but once they once we can help them diminish the barrier that is reading for them once we find ways to give them equitable access to 
literacy and to be able to have that ability to be able to learn and grow independently, you know, for a lot of our kids, sky is the limit. Yes, absolutely. That's really helpful to know. And it's, it's good for the listeners that might be feeling really frustrated right now and worried about their own children or the children they're seeing on their caseload in their classrooms, that this is a barrier, but you can get through this barrier with the right support. And that's so critical. I'm so glad you're offering that there. It's been so good to talk to you. I have two, I'm mindful of our time and I have two more important questions to ask you. Absolutely. Every guest. The first one is, speaking of literacy, what was your favorite childhood book or book now, either one or both? Well, my favorite childhood book, and it's not really a childhood book, but it was the, it was a turning point for me is The Hunt for Red October. Mm -hmm. So I read The Hunt for Red October around age 11. And it's a huge book. I've read it probably. One of my challenges is that I I benefit from rereading material multiple times. I think everybody does, but but for for comprehension reasons, it's really helpful for me to go back. And so I I read The Hunt for Red October again around around fifth sixth grade, I would say, and it really opened up a love for history. I was fascinated by the Cold War. And it really engaged a love of travel and language. In fact, academically, you know, a huge area of strength for me was actually foreign language. And so I ended up studying Russian and Russian uses the Cyrillic alphabet. And unlike English, which has an opaque orthography, you know, you know, we've got 44 sounds for 26 letters. Russian uh, is, you know, very similar to a language like Finnish, where it's it, there's a very direct sound symbol relationship. So as long as you can learn what the symbols, you know, mean, each is indi- each symbol is individual, doesn't look like the other ones, and it it, it was really, um, you know, but it really gave me a huge lens into a whole different world. And that's actually when I ended up studying college, Russian language. I studied abroad in Moscow and Kiev. I ended up living in uh, Helsinki and Paris. And I ended up uh, at the Sorbonne in, in, wow. uh, when I went to college. And so, you know, that really changed my life. Wow, that's amazing. And it does, it's just from one book. From one book, wow. right. Wow. And, you know, I, I was, you know, I, again, I was really fortunate to be in, a, in an environment where, you know, my, my uh, parents were well-educated, you know, and they exposed to me to a lot of books and there was an expectation that we read in the house. But, you know, as, as somebody who struggled with reading early on, you know, sometimes that can be frustrating. You know, sometimes that doesn't seem that appealing. But Dr. Galliberto, one of the things he shared with me uh, soon after meeting him was just a reminder of how kids love being read to. And I really take that to heart. I always, I, did you love being read to as a oh, child? I loved it. Loved right. It. And I do it every night with my children. Right. Yeah. Every single night. And it's a beautiful experience. And, and, you know, there are a lot of ways we can facilitate literacy development and good modeling and a love of reading. Yes. And, and so, yes. you know, we, we can really do that. Absolutely. That's, that's really fantastic. And I will say in case the listeners wondering, just to be clear, Ben and I are not saying that reading will Make sure that your child doesn't. That's have right. That's like, really always, important. No, that's right. You can read to your child that's right. and create that love of reading, but they can still have a brain that makes it very difficult for them to learn to decode words. And that is not the parent's fault, not related to how much they read. You know, you and I are on social media. We see some of these things. Oh, so I yeah. just wanted to clarify yeah. that before I Well, and the- just real quick to add to that, I, yeah. I think one of the challenges too is that 
you're absolutely right. And, and unfortunately, we actually end up taking a lot of, I think, parents well-intentioned or schools take the flip side, which is to say any, any exposure to reading for a struggling reader should be them reading and trying to get through text. And what we know is, you know, when, when somebody's having trouble with something or somebody's learning a skill, it's exhausting for them. And actually, in some ways, you know, too much of that will may really be impactful for a love of, of reading. And one of the things we really encourage families to do is to expose their kids to things like Audible or to do reading at home because that actually develops things like vocabulary, thematic elements, character development, all the things we want children to get out of a rich reading experience, comprehension, right? Um, that they might not be getting if they really need to focus when they are actively reading on the, on the foundational skills they'll need to, to crack the code and become fluent readers. Absolutely, I'm so glad you said that, that's fantastic. Um, and a shout out to Child Podcasts. There's actually some really amazing oh, podcasts that are put on by children or, or you know, related to more of the uh, nonfiction. Oh, I'll have to check topics. that out. That's yeah, great. it's actually yeah. pretty cool. That's uh, But then you have to fight with your children about what podcast you're going to listen to in the car, which is my current struggle. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Which is <laughs> a favorite in your house right now. Turn. Um, we like one called The Punies. Oh, I haven't heard of that. Yes. So it is um, actually, it was, I, I believe that Kobe Bryant was part of it no initially. Wow. Um, but it is a series about these kids that are doing different sports, but it's about teamwork and working. It's really oh, cute, wow. very funny. Um, that's one of our favorites oh, right terrific. now. And yeah. I have a lot of favorites, so I always had to move. It's mommy's turn. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't get that turn. So that's yeah. good to know. I should advocate for myself. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. Um, and the last thing I'll ask you is, what are you working on now that you're most excited about? Well, as part of what we talked about with the Haskins Global Literacy Hub and, and working to help with this translational research, one of the things that we are doing at the Southport School, we launched this initiative about two years ago called the Southport Collab. And we see this opportunity to say, okay, we, we have all this great experience we know to your point tiffany what works for our kids benefits all learners so we've done a tremendous amount of outreach we're in a number of uh, schools in connecticut helping to train teachers and be a resource but one area specifically that we're targeting are schools in these vulnerable communities so one of the adjacent communities to us in in uh, to the southport school is bridgeport connecticut which is almost 100% free and reduced lunch. And for the listeners, if you don't know what that means, 100% free and reduced lunch is really a, a key indicator that these are children coming from poverty. And for about four or five years now, we've been working with four schools in Bridgeport. We're doing, uh, now we're doing a three-year longitudinal study with them where we're training all the K, one, and two teachers in structured literacy and we're charting student progress. And actually Yaakov at FCRR is helping us with the data analysis on this. So, you know, we're, but, and we're doing all this for free. We started this initiative just through the goodwill of the people that, that, that we work with. And actually over, over time, we've gotten some funding from some different organizations. And really exciting is that this past fall, we started to um, develop an opportunity to go into a school in Bridgeport. So this is actually our fifth school in Bridgeport. We're doing actual one-to-one -one work with students. So in the other schools, we're training teachers, which is critically important. In this school, we're gonna do a hybrid. We're, 
We're, we've already started training some of those teachers. And now what we have the opportunity to do through the generosity of some donors in our community is to push into this into the school and work with their lowest performing kids, doing, doing work with them one-to-one -one twice a week and creating what I'll call a package for them so that when they leave this school, they'll have some of some really good testing, which kids from poverty almost never get. So we'll have some some uh, achievement testing, some cognitive testing for them. So they, there's a good perspective and, you know, help them craft some goals and objectives for their IEP before they leave this school and go on to their next school. So I'm really excited about these opportunities because that is what will create, as Julie Washington says, exponential generational change. Mm -hmm. If we can teach somebody to read who otherwise would not have had that opportunity, you know, if that if that person has children, huge change. The workforce, huge change. I mean, we need to be literate to be able to access the, the workplace, to be able to, to raise our children, you know, to, to, ha to, to have access to information. Um, and I think about this in the way that I think about why the print, you know, what change the printing press did for us. And, and, you know, thinking about, you know, opening up the opportunity for people to be able to access information independent of someone else. It's so important. So to be able to go into these vulnerable communities and, and partner with schools and be able to help them affect that change is incredibly rewarding. That's very exciting. I so appreciate all the work you're doing in advocacy and just bringing the word out about what is dyslexia? What are these children like? What are they capable of? Just so glad to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. And, and thank you for the amazing work you're doing here at MGH and, and the work you're doing to push into schools and those vulnerable communities too, because it makes a huge impact. And we're grateful that the science you do helps inform what we do, because through that, we can all be more effective and help so many more children. So thank you. Check out www.seeherspeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript, research articles, and speaker bios. You can also sign up for email alerts on the website or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you making the world a better place by helping one child at a time.